Again, welcome. Very glad to have you here at Covenant Presbyterian Church. My name is John, and we, uh, after our uh, Easter services, return then to uh, Mark's Gospel. Uh, We are uh, this morning in Mark chapter 6, beginning at verse 45, which is Jesus walking on water. Little theologians, very happy to have you here with us uh, during this service. Would you, uh, if uh, it's okay with mom and dad, work on a piece of art of a boat at sea, and it's very stormy. Remember, a Galilean uh, fishing boat is about the size of a UPS van or FedEx van. Remember, we had this conversation. So work on a small boat in a stormy sea. Our passage is from Mark chapter 6, beginning at verse 45. Let's pray first before we read. Father, thank you for making yourself known. Forgive us for constantly, almost ceasingly, inventing you after our own image. Define yourself, assert your authority by your holy word and by your Holy Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark 6:45 Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he taken leave of them he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, They laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. This is the word of our Lord. Have you ever heard a happy story, but that still has a tinge of sadness in it? Or maybe a sad story that has a tinge of happiness in it? And it's actually hard to tell if this scene of Jesus walking on the water should be understood as a happy story or a sad story. It's a miracle, Jesus walking on water. On on top of that, it's also a rescue story. Uh, He seemingly saves the disciples, and so it has this action-adventure feel. The wind picked up so much that beginning at 3 a.m., it's all hands on deck, and at 3 a.m., he comes. But it's also a sad story because regardless of what's happened, the miracle, the rescue, 
The tone at the very end tells us that yet again we're witnessing an illustration of the disciples' hardness of heart. In verse 51, we're told plainly that they didn't understand. And after all they've heard and witnessed with Jesus, their hearts were hardened. And Mark wants us to know this. And Mark's account is actually very brief. He leaves out a critical scene, which ought to make us wonder what exactly it is that Mark is doing. You see, uh, Matthew, in Matthew chapter 14, he describes this same scene. But in Matthew's account, Peter actually shouts out to Jesus on the water, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he does. And at the very end, when the storm has died down, Matthew says that the doubting disciples of little faith, they actually worshipped him. Seems like a slightly more positive ending. But you heard in this passage from Mark chapter 6 what's glaringly missing, right? Peter's short attempt to walk on water actually doesn't show up in this scene. Why is that? You see, the shortness of Mark's account is particularly uh, odd for this reason. You should know this. You see, Mark, he's in Rome, and he's with Peter as he's writing his account. And in fact, he's writing his account with the help of none other than Peter. Peter was the one walking on the water. Peter is the one sharing the information for Mark. Why was the walking on water left out of Mark's account when Peter's the very one informing Mark of the details? Have you asked that? I mean, no scholar that I've read solves this riddle. I mean, I've, I've certainly not read everything, but perhaps the riddle itself, it just doesn't even need to be solved. The Holy Spirit is free to do what he will. One thing I am sure of is I'm very positive that Uh, Peter does not tell Mark to leave out the bit of him walking on the water because it makes him look a little bit foolish. Peter becomes afraid and he begins to sink, you remember. But look, Peter, he's not afraid of looking foolish. We can count on that. Now, I think that the reason why uh, Peter's walking on water is not covered in Mark's account is because Mark wants us to see two things very brightly. One is this, Mark wants us to see the drama of the Son of God coming close to the disciples. But there's something else that Mark wants us to see. He wants us to see the remarkable ability of the disciples to be hard-hearted towards Jesus, even during such a magnificent event. Mark wants us to see that hard-heartedness, and he wants us to see it clearly. The scene of Jesus walking on the water and the short scene afterwards of Jesus healing sick people in Gennesaret reminds us that God is willing to come close to us even though, even though we are so stubborn and so hard-hearted. Well, the action of the scene takes place in three phases on the mountain, on the boat, and on the land. Let's just use that as an outline And so we begin on the mountain, verses 45 through 47. But first of all, we have to remember what's happened just before this scene. Uh, We were last there the week before our Palm Sunday service. But you remember what happened. 
a crowd of at least 5,000 people uh, had heard the teaching of Jesus on the kingdom of God. And as it got later, they were fed by him. Remember that five loaves and two fish were all that the disciples could come up with. But Jesus thanked God for this, divided the food, distributed it to his disciples for them to distribute to the others. And then 12 baskets of bread and fish were left over. And verse 45 of our passage says, Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he, while he dismissed the crowd. I mean, if nothing else, we need to notice that Jesus is taking charge of all of the proceedings uh, like an orchestral director. You go there, you go there, I'll go here. He's decisive, efficient, direct. Earlier that evening, the disciples encouraged Jesus to send all of the crowds out into the surrounding countryside and villages to buy something to eat. But instead, Jesus takes charge and he feeds them all. And here he's telling his disciples, get in the boat. I'll dismiss the crowd. There's biblical evidence here to suspect that Jesus does this to protect himself and the disciples from the crowd. In John's gospel, he tells us that the crowd at this time in the ministry of Jesus has begun to uh, seek Jesus that they might make him king, even if they have to do it forcibly. A very strong word is used here in verse 45. He made his disciples get into the boat. Notice how in control Jesus is. And when the shore is relatively empty, verse 46, after he had taken leave of them, Mark tells us that Jesus went up on the mountain to pray. Now this is Jesus. And so on the surface, the the Bible telling us that Jesus prayed is really not surprising. The Bible gives several instances of Jesus uh, retreating in private, or at least trying to retreat in private, in order that he might pray. And prayer is a uh, conversation. It's Jesus meeting with the Holy Father. He's expressing his desires agreeable to the Father's will. He's thanking his Father. He's acknowledging his Father's wisdom and his Father's mercy. And we can only imagine the sweetness of this communion. This is Jesus. Jesus prays. But one commentator notices something here, and we ought to notice it as well. He says that Mark shares with us only three occasions when Jesus prays. Just three. Is that surprising? This commentator says that each prayer is at night and each prayer is in a lonely place. He says each prayer finds the disciples removed from Jesus. And with each prayer, the disciples are failing to understand the mission of Jesus. On one of these occasions, just before Jesus launches his preaching ministry, uh, remember that the disciples childishly interrupt this prayer with the words, everyone's looking for you. And then later he's going to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane just before his arrest. And what are the disciples doing? They're disobeying him. They're sleeping. And the other occasion is right here. And in verse 47, Mark makes this obvious, obvious statement, but it's one that we need to uh, explicitly notice. Uh, he says this in verse 47. He says, uh, and when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and Jesus was alone on the land. The boat is out at sea, 
and Jesus is alone on the land. That's verse 47, and that separation is very important for us to notice. Do you think that the wind at this point has begun to uh, pick up? Uh, perhaps the weather is just beginning to sour, the waves lapping the side of the boat at an in- increasing rate, the wind gusting more across the surface of the sea, and maybe even on the mountain upon which Jesus is praying. But in verse 47, Mark wants us to see that there's a distance between Jesus, who is alone on the mountain, and the disciples who are away on the surface of the sea. Why this distance? Separation. Well, what do you think is going to happen next? And so now we move from the mountain to the boat, which begins at verse 48. And it may be that in the boat, the disciples were not yet very frightened as Jesus ascends the top of the mountain and opens his time of prayer. The weather may only now be beginning to pick up, Did you know that even in very poor conditions, one could still make it across the entire Sea of Galilee in six or eight hours? We know that they only needed to make it to Bethsaida. There's some other confusions associated with that. But to reach Bethsaida would hardly require crossing the entire sea. So by all accounts, they should have made it well before 3 a.m., imagine if they departed just shortly after sundown around 7 p.m. Well, they should be on land, tucked in bed well before 3 a.m., but they're not. And not only that, but for a portion of this time, they've actually been visible to Jesus despite that separation of verse 47. Look at verse 48. Jesus saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. Do you feel the drama of this scene is Mark gives us the details slowly. There's a separation, but the separation doesn't seem to be that far. And then uh, Jesus, uh, as he is praying, he seems to at least occasionally open his eyes in his prayer, and he can see them struggle. Uh, by the way, I mean, do you, do you think that the disciples, do you think they could see Jesus? We just don't know. Jesus, he's at a higher elevation, so he has an advantage. We don't know if the disciples can see Jesus on the mountain. But what do you think the disciples thought of what Jesus was doing? Look again at verse 46. Jesus, he dismissed them before his ascent. After he had taken leave of them, he went up, says verse 46. And we know that he's praying to the Father, but do they know that he's praying to the Father? I mean, surely they knew that Jesus loved them. Remember, he chose the disciples. He called them. He desired them. uh, He appointed them. Jesus says of them in chapter 3 of Mark that they are his brothers. Earlier that very day, he had invited them to a desolate place that he might be with them. Surely they would have known that he loved them. And if they knew that Jesus was praying, I don't think it's presumptuous to assume that they would know that they themselves were a part of his prayers. He loves them. And I wonder, again, I can only wonder, 
if it would have been a source of comfort for them to know that Jesus could see the weather and could see them. If it would be a comfort to them to know that Jesus was thinking about them. As the weather gets rougher and rougher, I wonder if it would have been a source of comfort to them to know that Jesus was praying for them in their struggle, that he was interceding for them on their behalf, communing with his heavenly father for them. The disciples, they've just not been told what Jesus was doing. They can conjecture perhaps, but they weren't told. I wonder if you're here this morning as a believer Do you take comfort in the intercession of Jesus? The disciples apparently don't know from their vantage point that Jesus, he's praying for them. But do you know that Jesus is praying for you? The Bible says that Jesus has entered heaven itself to appear in the presence of God on your behalf. The Bible says that. Christian, do you know that? In fact, the Bible says that even in our sin, he is an advocate with the Father because he is Jesus Christ, the righteous. And so he can advocate for you, the unrighteous, and for me, the unrighteous. Do you take any comfort in that, Christian? But the bad weather of daily life can get pretty rough, can't it? And the winds that swirl around this particular boat, they intensify. And Mark says that the disciples are making headway painfully, straining at the oars, the NIV says. You know, the word here is pretty graphic. It's like the straining of childbirth. It's like straining in hell. It's like the strain a demon feels in the presence of Jesus. Serious pain. You know, if any of that straining feels very comfortable to you this morning as a Christian, I remind you again, Jesus, he's praying for you. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian and yet you still feel that strain, hang tight. Listen to what Jesus can do for you. At the very end of verse 48, Mark tells us that about 3 a.m., Jesus, he came to them walking on the water. Why would he leave communion with the Holy Father to come to them? Less than 24 hours ago, this may be a hint, Jesus, he had compassion on the crowds. His very heart departed from his chest. He was so full of pity for them, and he pitied them as sheep without a shepherd. In fact, this image becomes all the more real because what are the disciples doing right now at this moment? They're crying out in terror, hopeless, pathetic. And in fact, when they see Jesus in verse 49, uh, we see that there is this crying out, this impassioned shout. But what are they shouting? Well, they think that Jesus is a ghost, an apparition, a disembodied member of the spirit world. And are they crying out to him? Uh, No, I think not. The word that's used for crying out is literally uh, crying up. Perhaps they're crying out uh, to heaven. They are utterly desperate. And this man who is approaching them on the water, he's disembodied. He's dead. He can't steady a boat, not without a body. Does Does he have power? 
Can he even speak? He's a man without a body. And his, his presence will actually present more trouble, not less. And they're terrified. And their cry is a nonverbal shout of desperation, a pointless cry and a howling wind loud enough to hear over the howling wind. They're a lot like screeching sheep who know that a wolf is nearby somewhere. They can smell them. And they baw their loudest baw of desperation. Or like you and me when we are overcome with the troubles of life circumstances and we too are left with nothing in us but a final shout, a cry, a baw of desperation. There are bills, there's illness, there's work, there are relationships, there's failures, and all of this can be so overwhelming that we feel as though all we can do is cry and shout. In a moment like that, would five words possibly make a difference to you? It's five words here in verse 50 in the Greek. In English, it sounds like this, take heart, literally have courage. It is I, do not be afraid. Think about those words for a moment. In a cry of desperation, would that be enough? Would it be enough for you to be reassured by a ghost. A ghost that uh, surely looks an awful lot like Jesus, and the words may be certainly well meant, but it's a ghost. Would that be enough for you in your own cries of desperation? Well, what about this? What about this? What what if the ghost, one real foot after another real foot, steps into your boat and the winds cease and the apparition has substance, has weight, you can feel it and the wind noise is gone and the shouts are gone and it's just you exhausted, sore throat in a boat on a calm, dark sea with Jesus. He has come, and he's come for you, and he's come for me. Would that make a difference? Well, we can put this into perspective in a slightly different way. Uh, what do you think is meant by this very odd expression in verse 48, he meant to pass them by? Uh, that expression is actually only found in Mark's account. And one solution is that uh, this phrase, uh, passing by them, refers to Job chapter 9, a passage we looked at earlier in our service, in which God alone tramples the waves of the sea, and Job says that God passes by even though he doesn't reveal himself. Well, that expression passes by, Job uses that in Job chapter 9 twice. Jesus then is God who tramples the sea and he passes by to highlight this fact before turning back to them. But there's another solution for that strange expression in verse 48, he meant to pass them by. And this comes from the life of Moses. 
You'll recall that in desperation, Moses, he cries out to God, and he cries out to God that God might meet with him. He asks to see the glory of God, and God says this, I will make all of my goodness pass before you. There's the expression again. And he will proclaim before you my name. And then in Exodus chapter 34, God does exactly this. Uh, God, he invites Moses to Mount Sinai very early in the morning. And God places Moses in a cleft in the rock. And he covers him with his hand until he passes by. Uh, Again, that same word that shows up in verse 48 of our passage. And you you know the story. I mean, God, he, he passes by and he says these words as he's passing by. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Exodus 34, do you remember that? God came so near to Moses that Moses heard his voice from the safety of the cleft in the rock covered by God's own hand. And as soon as this happened, Moses, he quickly bows his head. And what does he do? He worships God. He knew that he had found favor in God's sight. He knows that God will be with them, the people, in their very midst as they leave Mount Sinai. Moses is confident in his adoration. He's confident in the future, and he's also confident of something else. He's confident that the Hebrew people are a stiff-necked people in need of pardon, and that their iniquity and sin is great. And Moses knows that about himself as well. This is what we'd expect of Moses after God passes by, isn't it? Imagine being that near to God. Boy, that would bring a lot of things into clear focus. The imperative to worship him, the sense of confidence about the future, and the awareness of sin and need for forgiveness. And as the disciples strain against the wind, shouting at the top of their terror-stricken voices, Jesus, he passes by saying, It is I. Moses heard the Lord, the Lord. And whereas God passed by Moses, now God, the I am, comes close to the disciples. Very close. God climbs into the boat. And after God passes by Moses, you remember, uh, Moses' face shone so brightly that he needed to cover it with a veil. But imagine what might have happened if God himself didn't uh, just hold Moses into the cleft of the rock, but removed his hands and himself crawled into the cleft of the rock to be with Moses. (sighs) What would Moses be like after that? He wouldn't need a veil just for his face. He'd need to cover his whole body, which would be radiating with the brightness of God's glory. Jesus, don't you see, climbs into the boat with them, Mark says explicitly. And the wind ceased. Well, is it a happy story or a sad story? Before leaving the boat, we need to notice Mark's summary in verses 51 and 52. We can only imagine the spectrum of the emotion of the disciples. The journey on the water began with exhaustion, straining against the wind, terror-stricken, and now they're utterly astounded by what they've just seen. But Mark leaves us with something else. Their hearts were hardened, he tells us. Their hearts were hardened. In telling us this, In many ways, he's told us enough. They're no better than the wandering Hebrews who were fed manna in the wilderness every day by God, a God who made his tent with them, who guided and protected them. What do they want? They complained. 
In the presence of God, they longed for Egypt. And these people in the boat who were moments ago, sheep screeching for safety, they now calcify their hearts against their shepherd. The care that they have in him is not the care that they want. The bread of life that he freely offers is not quite to their liking or to their taste. And, you know, really, this, this is a lot like us as Christians. We need to fess up. But God has come close to them in a way that he's never come before. The compassion of Jesus, it was never merely about food. It was about his nearness. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is here. God is willing to come to us, even though we're stubborn and hard-hearted. On the land is where we'll conclude. Here we see a picture that Mark intends for us to contrast with the hardness of heart in the boat. They came to a land at Gennesaret, moored at the shore. Gennesaret was much further south than Bethsaida, their original destination. Perhaps the wind drove them in an almost opposite direction. We just don't know where Bethsaida is, but we know that they arrive at Gennesaret. Densely populated plain, some three miles long, extremely lush with vegetation and filled with people. And look what happens here. Something that didn't happen on the boat. In verse 54, uh, when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him. Does this stand out to you? They immediately recognized him. Twelve men in a boat. They didn't recognize him. And now everyone does. And not only this, Jesus says nothing in this passage. There's no teaching in these, three, in these four verses. It's just a feverish, uninterrupted, and unquestioning mob of the one who has come. Notice that Jesus, he goes from village to city to countryside saying nothing, but he's recognized everywhere. And here Jesus takes no precautions whatsoever. An observant Jew would sew tassels on the corners of their cloak to remind them of God's commandments. And Jesus has done this. And it's the mere fringe that the people are, at the very least, hoping to reach out and touch. By the way, nobody here believes he's a ghost. They're actually reaching out to touch him because he's real. It was believed that rulers possessed a certain power that whoever touched them would receive uh, power and blessing themselves. And Jesus, well, he's walking and he's being recognized and he's being touched all along the way. The disciples, they had to feel so small. Mark says nothing of them here in Gennesaret. Here, they are mere spectators of the greatness of Jesus, the God who has come to save. The word uh, to be made well in verse 56 is literally the word for salvation. And we shouldn't assume here that each of the people touching Jesus and receiving healing, they're regenerated believers, true converts. We can't assume that. According to the Holy Spirit, we actually don't need to know this. We know that the salvation Jesus offers is for all those who hear and believe. And we don't know if there is hearing or believing in the scene, but we have no choice but acknowledge that Jesus is God and he has come near. You see, the disciples, they've just witnessed Jesus walking on water. They know it was a miracle. They know that he is Lord of creation, yet, yet, they also know that the Lord of creation is for them. 
he didn't pass them by. He came nearer and nearer still. And in that same moment of his nearness, they also felt their own necks stiffen and their own hearts grow hard. They became aware of their love for the world, their love for their own plan for safety, and their love for their own plan for hope and future. They actually became, a love, became aware of their love for Egypt, especially in the presence of a God who climbed in the boat with them. But now on land, you see what they see. They take in the plains of Gennesaret, the throngs of people who see, who recognize, who touch, and who are healed. And it's a happy story after all. The kingdom of God is here. But what you need to take heart of and what I need to take heart of is that this one who's willing to save, he's willing to come so close to you that even you begin to see your stubbornness and your hard-heartedness more and more. The encouragement for you as a Christian, know this about yourself. He has come near. See in your heart how ungrateful you are for his nearness. See that. Confess. Repent and never doubt his initiative. He has come near. Would you join me in prayer? Jesus, you're the one who's come near to us. And yet we treat this tritely. Forgive us, Jesus. Encourage us, remind us that you're willing to come near to us, even in our hard-heartedness. And you'll never leave us, even as we struggle as believers with that same hard-heartedness. Have mercy, O Lord. Thank you for coming. Amen.